Let's go to Jeremiah 1. Let me give you a little bit of background. Anybody ever, Sally, did you ever sign the thing where you made the students write out what they wanted to be when they grow up? Okay. Is that kind of standard fare for grade school or whatever? And then they make you do it again in high school and, and in college or whatever. What do I want to be when I grow up? Do you remember any of those things you wanted to be when you were younger? Trish, what did you want to be younger? Uh, she wanted to be a stewardess. I, I was going to say, I bet you would have made a good stewardess, Trish. Uh, you would have. Anybody else? What did, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? You wanted to be a cardinal, a St. Louis cardinal. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. There are a lot of people who would agree with that. What else did I hear over here? A garbage man. A, a garbage, really? Well, okay, wanted to be a garbage man. My, my son, we were having some uh, grass sodding done, and my son at about five was watching out the living room window at the grass workers, and he decided he wanted to be a grass worker uh, at about five. That changed. Do what? A Broadway star. And you could have done that, Sally, if you hadn't taught kids for 30 years or whatever. Now, by the way, when I talk about a grass worker, Lisa, I'm not talking about what happens in Colorado, okay? That's a different deal. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, the side. All right. Miriam. You wanted to be in the circus, a trapeze artist. Did you ever try that? Because I want pictures if you did, Okay. Now, did you catch that? Boy, talk about high, high and lofty goals. She wanted to be a trapeze artist in the circus one time and then wanted to be an interpreter at the UN, which you could have done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember going to a school with a guy who was just, he was both the best athlete in school and the smartest guy in school at the time. And um, I remember he became a linguist. And I think, who would... Decide you want to be a linguist, but evidently you did. You wanted to be an interpreter, yeah. Um, well, what would it be like if instead of the school teacher saying to you, write what you want to be when you grow up, what if the school teacher said, I'm going to tell you what you're going to be when you grow up? That, does that put a little chill up your spine? It kind of does me. <laughs> what would they have said about you in those days? Okay, all right. I don't want to go there either. Uh, that's the kind of dubious, interesting position that Jeremiah finds himself in in chapter one. God saying to Jeremiah, I'm going to tell you who you're going to be when you grow up. Okay. Now, let, we'll, we'll begin to look there in a minute. Let me tell you a little bit about Jeremiah himself and about, about his life. Uh, we think he, was, he, was, um, he began his ministry in about 626 B.C. Because the Bible tells us, uh, even as this book begins, it's in the 13th year of the reign of good King Josiah in the, in the uh, southern kingdom. And that helps us place it in a historical context. Um, uh, if, if, if we said last week that Isaiah was a courtier, he was connected. 
what you got to figure here, what you got to catch, is that in every way that Isaiah was connected, Jeremiah was not. He was, uh, he didn't live a, a charmed life at all. And we're going to see some about that even as we study today. Um, now, uh, he would preach later on that godliness and holiness on the part of, of Judah, not military might, was going to be the secret to their survival of staving off uh, the Assyrians from the north. But they didn't completely listen to that and, um, and uh, uh, suffered the consequences of that as a result. Um, only reliance on and, dis and uh, dedication to the true God would turn aside the threat of that invasion. And so they didn't follow his advice. But um, it's interesting there was a hopeful time because of Josiah's dedication to the Lord throughout his leadership. But that all, the history of, of Judah took a quick and fatal turn after he died in 609. And by 586, the Babylonians had sacked Jerusalem and destroyed Solomon's great temple and uh, all of that. Now, so you've got all that going on that's part of Jeremiah's call and part of the challenge of his call. You know, we've been talking about the call of God on the life of, of these uh, Old Testament heroes. But another issue is kind of where he was from. If you look at the first verse of the first chapter here of Jeremiah, you're going to realize that he was from a little town called Anathoth uh, that was three miles north northeast of Jerusalem. He comes from a Levitical family, from a priestly family. This was a Levite town. It was a convenient place for uh, workers in the Jerusalem temple to live and then, then commute back and forth to Jerusalem. And uh, as a res resident of this town, um, Jeremiah undoubtedly thought he would follow in the footsteps of his father, who was probably a Levite or a priest. And, um, and so um, he kind of thought he'd follow in those, in those uh, footsteps. Skip, aren't you glad that I didn't follow my dad's footsteps? I, not smart enough to be a plumber. I just was never smart enough to be a plumber. So I went to school and did other things. But, but uh, these guys are really smart, and they do stuff that nobody else wants to do. I didn't follow my dad's footsteps. It didn't, it didn't make him nervous because I had worked with him long enough to know, for him to know that I couldn't do that. I, I wasn't any good at it. Jeremiah was not able to follow in the footsteps of his father. God had a different plan for him, and we're going to see that recounted here. Now, we're going to start in verse 4. And So, Steve, you or Cindy, one, read verse 4 and 5. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Okay. For the first three verses of the book... It has talked in general terms. Now, Jeremiah's doing the writing. But it's talked in general terms about things going on. The words of Jeremiah. The priests who were at Anathoth in the, in the land of Benjamin. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Joseph. So he's talking about all these things going on. And then all of a sudden, where Steve picks it up in verse 4, the message from the Lord becomes incredibly personal here. The first three verses are narrative. Then the Lord came to me. And he's going to talk about the kings under which he served 
or during which time he served, about 40 years during the reign of four different kings in Judah, um, Jeremiah is going to preach and prophesy and lead. So it's, it's a very personal message beginning in verse 4. And God's very personal message then begins here in verse 5. The Lord of the Lord came to me saying, and what he says here, I want us to talk about two particular words here, and we're going to look at some other places to kind of help us. The word formed and the word new, K-N-E-W. He's going to say, God is going to say, you were formed, Jeremiah, and I knew you. And what I want you to see before we go too far is that what is true of Jeremiah is also true of you. You were formed by God's hand, and he knew you. We're going to talk about how long he has known you. Now, I asked the guys to kind of prepare to read some other passages over here. So, Steve, are you picking it up on Jeremiah 29, 16? I'm sorry, Isaiah 29, 16? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say of the potter, he knows nothing? Okay, so the idea here from not only from Jeremiah, but from Isaiah is this imagery of a potter working a work on the wheel. We'll talk about that in just a minute from, from Jeremiah 18. But the idea here is, is that God's hands formed you. Now let's listen to how David describes that in the 139th Psalm. Uh, Steve, I think I've got verse 1 and 2 and verse 16. Is that right? O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Okay. How well does God know you? Better than anyone. Better than you know yourself. What is true of Jeremiah is also true of, of you here. The idea that he knows you or knew you conveys a sense of real intimacy here. It's, it's an intimate term. Now, if you want to just kind of stick your, leave your finger in verse one of chapter one and go over to chapter 18. I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story that happened in 18. In 18, there's lots of illustrations that, that uh, uh, Jeremiah actually, he's kind of a living illustration. He's always doing something that has some illustrative value. So in chapter 18, God, through the spirit of God, says to him, I want you to go to the potter's house. And he says, so he sends him to see a potter uh, working a work with his wheel. And so that, that whole chapter, or most of that chapter, um, verse one and following, that's what we're talking about, okay, is about Isaiah, uh, uh, Jeremiah watching a potter making a pot. And if you, if you read this story, it says that as the potter is, is wielding the clay, he, he recognizes there's a flaw in the clay. So he stops and he cuts out the bad part of the clay. And he puts the clay back on the wheel and starts over. Anybody ever done any pottery? Can I tell you about my only experience of pottery? 
okay? It was like in seventh grade. Now, you remember my mother, who was a saint, and she was a third grade teacher for 33 years. I made her an ashtray. You know, come on. Little, little, little thing with a lip around it and a little split for you put your... Why would I make my mother an ashtray? What's the matter with me? Okay, so I only know this pottery thing by, uh, by studying it, not by experience, okay? But so there's this idea, and, and by the way, the, kind of the money verse of uh, chapter 18 is about verse 7 where, where God says to Jeremiah, he says, watch this. And he says, I want you to tell the people that as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are you in my hands. So the idea is he formed you. And if there is some flaw in workmanship or in the clay itself, he, there wouldn't be a flaw in the workmanship that he made, right? If there's a flaw, he can rework it and make something new of you. Paul talks about the beauty of a broken vessel, the usefulness even of a broken vessel. This is the idea of the clay being reworked, reshaped. You were formed in God, by God's hand and in his image. So um, it's just, as we look at verse four and five, there are several implications of all this that I just can't escape, and I want to stop here for just a minute and, and kind of deal with. What are the implications of, of what we learn here about God forming you and knowing you, okay? Let me give you two or three or four, just real quick, all right? He, God, knew you longest. If what Steve read a bit ago is true, and it is, he knew you before your mother knew you. You know, when we talk to, uh, to young mommies about who've had children recently, they'll talk about, well, you know, I've known this child uh, not just a month. You know, Rhonda's got a dear friend who just had a little baby grandchild this week, and we've been very concerned about him, and he's doing okay. But his mom knew him nine months, but God knew him before that. God knew Jeremiah, it says here, before he was born, before he was conceived. David says the same thing. He knew you longest and he knows you best. Better than you know yourself. How far back can you remember? You know, the further I go, the less far back I can go, but... I figure I've got some memories from about age five, maybe. God knows you longest and knows you best. Second, it's the potter's hand that gives value to the clay. Think about that for a second. It's the potter's hand, it's his work that gives value to the clay. 
I read a story this week about a little town, Seagrove, North Carolina, that has a lot of, uh, there's a lot of clay in the soil there, and, and partially because of that, and it's very good, uh, very good quality of clay, partially because of that, there are 100 plus potters who live and work in and around Seagrove, North Carolina. Uh, they're just little pottery shops on every corner in this place. It sounds just idyllic. Because this kind of soil is so abundant there. But even though that's true, no tourist thinks I've got a right to take any piece of pottery with me for free because the stuff's just made out of a little bit, a uh, little more than, than the dirt that's around here anyway, right? Go ahead, don't try that. What was the place you went to where you bought all the pie plates? Was it in Berea? Berea and Bybee. Bybee Pottery, which you got some stuff. But you didn't dare. In fact, it was pretty expensive to go there. You don't just go to the potter's store and say, oh, I'm just going to take this because it's just dirt anyway, right? No, it's the potter's hand has made that dirt into something valuable. The potter has made your life and if I don't get much farther than this, that's okay. The potter has made your life valuable by the work of his hands, shaping you. And if you're like me and have made a mistake or two in your life, by reshaping you even more wonderfully. It's the work of the potter's hand that gives the pottery its value. Third, you are not your own. Paul says that. And it seems abundantly clear here. As God is giving Jeremiah his purpose for living, he kind of wants to convey this thought, I am the potter, you are the clay. You, you're not your own. Can I be somewhat political here? but I'll try to keep it theological. I really, and if you're on the, on the opposite side of this debate, I would love to talk to you about it. I really get kind of weary of the, um, uh, the whole uh, right to life debate of someone saying, this is my body. I got the right to do with it as I please. That is, by the way, so cross-grained to the Bible and it's clear here in Jeremiah 1 that you're not your own. In fact, Paul says you were bought with a very precious price. And last, you were made on purpose. With a purpose. With a purpose. It was in 1979, probably the fall of 1979, maybe, maybe the early months of 1980, and we had a little blonde-haired girl in our house. It was just a couple months old, and it was Christmas time, as I recall, and we went to a big department store in Lexington, Kentucky to do some shopping, and we had a, uh, we had uh, in those days, you know, strollers have come a long way. <laughs> the stroller I had weighed as much as a Buick, <laughs> you know, and it was all metal and, you know, 
leather, vinyl, whatever. And I had this huge stroller, and you know, being the smart guy that I am, I decided that I would take the stroller down the escalator at the department store. Now, now, before you go crazy, I handed the baby to her mother first, okay? With the diaper bag and all that other paraphernalia was still in there, and I'm going down the escalator on, uh, you know, holding on to the, uh, to the uh, uh, stroller. But it didn't go well. I, I know. In those days, it didn't, Joe. They figured you were smart enough to not do that, and, and certainly I wasn't. So literally, I ended up head over heels, stroller, me, stroller, me, for this long escalator. Imagine the escalator at the airport. You know those long it was like that. It was just me tumbling over the stroller. Over the door. And there were people shrieking in terror. Oh, the baby, the baby. <laughs> just as my dad would say, I fell for 30 minutes, okay? So I get to the end of it. By the end of this deal, it wasn't hurting me. By the end of it, it became kind of comical to me, okay? So I get to the end of the escalator and I kind of do a flying Walendus thing. I did a, you know? And I said something akin to, I meant to do that. Can I tell you something? When God looks at your life, I don't know what you think of yourself today. When God looks at your life, you know what he says? I meant to do that. I intended him. I intended her. From the very beginning. Actually, he's going to say from before the very beginning. He made you for a purpose, on purpose. All right. Let's go to the next couple of verses. Because we've got to drill down on what God is going to ask Jeremiah to do. It's not easy. Verse 6 and 7. Cindy, you got it? Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Okay, so remember Moses, a couple weeks ago when we looked at Moses, Moses' answer when God called him was what? Who, me? Who, me? No, not me. In fact, he said, here, my Lord, send him. Uh, uh, Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah, who we looked at last week, said, why not me, if you remember that. Jeremiah's pushback is going to be what? I'm way too young. I'm just a kid. I'm young. Um, Cindy, can, can I get you to go over to Job and read those two verses out of Job? So Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzzite, said, I am young in years. And you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak. Advanced years should teach wisdom. I was Friday night in the home of a colleague, and um, their two-year-old talked to us all night. All night. In full sentences. Like an adult. Like an adult. Yeah. What Job's friend is saying here is, I'm too young. Uh, in, in those days, the idea was, 
the younger didn't really have carte blanche to speak to the elder. I'm too young. I'm inexperienced. I've never done this before. In fact, uh, uh, Jeremiah is going to say here that um, uh, he's going to say, I lack age here. I lack experience. I haven't spoken before. How can I go speak to people even older than me when I haven't even speak, spoken to my peers yet as a preacher? That's his pushback. I'm too young. I'm too inexperienced. Maybe that has been yours in the past, or maybe it is now. And so in verse 7, what I want you to notice is the Lord doesn't really deny Jeremiah's point. He doesn't say, well, no, you're not too young. He, in fact, kind of acknowledges that Jeremiah is young, uh, kind of between the lines here. And he doesn't deny Jeremiah's age, but he says, the implication of this call is that your effectiveness is not going to depend on you, Jeremiah, but it's going to depend on me, God. And he promises here in verse 7 two things that every preacher, every speaker, uh, public speaker would love to have. He's, he's going to say here, I'm going to both give you the words to say and I'll provide the audience. Am I reading that right in verse 7? I'm going to tell you what to say, and I'm going to tell you to whom to say it. I'm going to give you both uh, uh, the opportunity here, the audience, and I will give you the message. Now, the question is, does God say here in verse 7, because we'll, we'll get into verse 8 here in a minute and kind of, kind of finish up this part of Jeremiah's call, but does God indicate uh, as you read it, Okay, Jeremiah, this is going to be a piece of cake. Easy. Does he? See, I think it's really clear here. I want you to catch this. God says, I'm going to take care of the details. You just do what I tell you to do. But he doesn't say, it will be easy. Now, I had to go back in my own sense of call 40 years to think through this a little bit this week. When God called me, out of Bethany, okay? I was kind of in Bethany when God was calling me. I was actually, believe it or not, I got, the start of my call was in a place called Stillwater, Oklahoma. Imagine that. When God, I had to go back and kind of rewind the tapes. When he called me, did he say, piece of cake, man, just follow me, no problem. He never said that to me. You know, it, it, he's the same God whose son Jesus said to you and to the disciples in John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but be not dismayed, I've overcome the world. I mean, he's honest about that. And as I looked back on my own sense of call, I don't get the sense that God ever said to me, this is going to be really easy. If you'll just do what I tell you to do, but it's really easy. It hasn't been easy. I, I hate to tell you what I've dragged her through in 40 years. The places we've had to live. <laughs> you know? Oh, it's good enough for the preacher. You know, that kind of stuff. He never promised me it would be easy. He didn't say to Jeremiah, this is going to be easy. I'm going to read to you from, from chapter 20, verse 7. Listen to, to, Jeremiah begins to complain in the middle of, of this whole thing. And here's what he says. He says, I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me, he said, in 20 verse 7. 
No, it's not going to be easy. But God never promised us it would be easy. We're going to look here at what God does promise. Now, Cindy, can I get you to go to verse 8 and read 8, 9, and 10? Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See today... Going, keep going. Going through 10, yeah. Okay. See today, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Okay. Now, over in 1121, if you want to follow us over there, therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life, saying, Don't prophesy in the name of the Lord so you'll not die at our hand. There, there's um, uh, Jeremiah's. Fearlessness here is ensured. In other words, he's, God says, you don't have to fear because of two things. By God, he's, he's going to give him his presence and he's going to rescue him. He has to rescue Jeremiah several times. Now, if you know much about the history of the day, Ezekiel goes to Babylon with the, those who are being carted off to Babylon. By the way, next week we'll be in Ezekiel 3. We'll read about the story of Ezekiel's call in Ezekiel 3. But Ezekiel goes off to Babylon with those who are being carted off to Babylon. Jeremiah stays in Jerusalem and around there, but his life is threatened even by people he grew up with. He is, um, he is threatened from home. Now, I did just a little study early this morning about some things that Jeremiah went through. Here, here's the deal. He was, he was put in stocks in the middle of town put there by another priest, by another preacher, okay? He was thrown in a cistern up to his waist in mud. Stayed there for a while. He was told by God to go buy a belt and hide it under a rock and then dig it up. And it was nasty when he dug it up. He was told to buy a jar, a piece of pottery, and break it in front of people. Did that. In chapter 32, which is a really, really important chapter, he's put in prison. And while he's in prison, he has an uncle come to him and say, would you buy my piece of property? And he does that. That's why he's in prison. He um, uh, writes out his entire message on a scroll and then has it burned. Somebody burns it. Then he's put in jail again, put in prison again. In, in uh, chapter 37 or so. Now, my, my question here is, God says, okay, your life isn't going to be easy, but I promise you I will be with you. And I promise you I will rescue you. And time and time again, God is so true to his word there. Now, have you ever said to someone, um, you're, you're kind of having an argument with somebody or maybe you're having some kind of negotiation with somebody and you say to them, okay, don't, don't put words in my mouth. Don't put words in my mouth. What does that mean? What? Don't speak for me. You don't know what I'm thinking. Look at the, look at the promise of verse 9. God says to Jeremiah, as a speaker, as a preacher, as a prophet, then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, 
I put my words in your mouth. Now, how does that compare with what we studied last week? It's important to note here, who touches Jeremiah's mouth? In Isaiah 6 that we studied last week, there was this wonderful picture of the angel coming and touching Isaiah's lips to clean them with, with a live coal off the altar. Ouch. But it was an angel who did that. Notice who does this here. Who puts the words figuratively and almost literally in Jeremiah's mouth? God does it himself. It's God's hand that does that here. It's kind of pretty wonderful. And then God kind of answers Jeremiah's objection as he goes through here. Kind of beautiful. So Jeremiah's going to spend most of his life in and around Judah. He's going to be in Judah and Benjamin, right around Jerusalem. Ezekiel will go off to Babylon. Others will do other things. Jeremiah is going to stay near, near home. And he's going to stay kind of near the heat of the fire. He's going to go through um, kind of pestilence. And um, he's going to go through um, uh, the famine that those who are in that region do. But even though he stays near his native Judah, his impact will go far beyond. And I want to ask you about the trade that he makes here. And I'm going to read several verses. I'm going to get this idea. Let's go to 23. Okay, you've been in chapter 1. Let's go to 23. This is part of Jeremiah's vision. Part of what God says to him. I'm going to go to verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. That's Jeremiah's country. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now go to chapter 31. I'm going to start at verse 31. Here's what he said. Part of his vision again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart, and I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. What was the trade-off for all those things that Jeremiah had to go through? He might have, as clearly as anybody, including Isaiah, got to see a picture of Jesus more clearly than anybody in his day. Maybe. That was the trade-off. He got to really see what Jesus was going to come and do. He gets a vision of Jesus. And can I say this? Look around the room for a second. He also got a vision of you. He got a vision of Jesus and the redemption that he was coming to give. And he got a vision of the church that's kind of unparalleled 
in this part of the Old Testament from 600 years or so before Jesus came. That's the trade-off. It didn't always go well for him. In fact, you remember, his nickname was the Weeping Prophet. He's the one who wrote the book of Lamentations, which is a book of mourning. But his trade-off for all of that was he could see really, really clearly. And so he answered the call, and I'm glad he did. I'll close with this thought. Every pilot has to solo before they get a license. Do you remember the scary feeling it was if you've done what I've done and turned one of your children over to a driving examiner because they they've driven with you for six months or more with you in the other seat clenching your teeth. Now, you hand them the keys to your car and they get in the car with an examiner and you hope the car comes back safely. Every pilot has to solo. Every driver has to solo. Every teenager driver is alone when they take the test and then later when they drive. Can I tell you something? You don't have to worry about soloing when you follow Jesus. Oh, you may feel alone some. But you don't have to worry about going it alone because of God's promise. Here's verse seven again. The Lord said to me, don't say I'm a youth because everywhere I send you, you'll go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah, despite more harassment than any other prophet in the Old Testament, never soloed a day in his life. Even in a cistern up to his waist in mud, he was not alone. Neither will you be. Are you dealing with what God is calling you to do in this season of your life? Can I tell you something again? I've told you every week for the last 10 weeks or so. Regardless of your age, regardless of your experience, regardless of what you've done before or have not done before, he is calling you to something. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? We'll study what Ezekiel did with his call, and especially chapter 3 next week. I'll see you here. Thanks.